Good morning. We are beginning a new sermon series today, going through the book of Proverbs. And this morning, our sermon text is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We'll also spend a little bit of time in 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4. The book of Proverbs is found among the collection of books in Scripture known as the wisdom literature, along with Job and Ecclesiastes. The wisdom literature is different from much of the Old Testament in that it's not historical narrative. It's not law. It's not prophecy. The wisdom literature does not advance the chronological storyline of Scripture. Yet they reveal much about the character and nature of God as well as the nature of his covenant relationship with his people. They provide insight regarding how God's people understand the world and how we live in this world, which is oftentimes vexing and confusing. Derek Kidner writes, In other words, in the wisdom books, the tone of voice and even the speakers have changed. The blunt thou shalt or shalt not of the law and the urgent thus saith the Lord of the prophets are joined now by the cooler comments of the teacher and the often anguished questions of the learner. Where the bulk of the Old Testament calls us simply to obey and to believe, this part of it summons us to think hard as well as humbly and not to shrink the most disturbing questions. If you like everything in life to fit into nice, neat, explainable categories, then the wisdom books will stretch you. This past Wednesday night, we had pizza with pastors for our middle school and high school students. And we invited them to ask any questions they wanted. And they were able to submit these questions ahead of time, writing them down on paper anonymously. So we gathered these questions and we spent time addressing the questions that they asked. And we encouraged them. We said, we want you to be able to ask any questions that you have, even the tough questions. You're welcome to challenge the faith, to express doubt. We want this to be a place where that is welcome. And so they did. They asked tough questions about evil. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Can you prove God exists? Do you believe that God will always love you? How do you feel about clapping in church? <laughs> when we discussed that last question, we took a couple moments to all clap together. And then I said... <laughs> And then I said, I feel pretty good. <laughs> we encourage them to ask questions, ask the hard questions. But I also told them, we won't always have great answers. But at least you got pizza. <laughs> we don't always have great answers. Sometimes we don't have good answers for why bad things happen. Sometimes it is difficult to discern the ways of the Lord. And sometimes in life, everything seems meaningless. Nevertheless, as God's people, we are called to navigate this confusing world in a way that is good and right in his eyes. Sometimes it is hard to do what is good and right because doing the right thing is costly. 
There are also times when it is hard to do the right thing because we don't know what the right thing is. We regularly face situations and circumstances that catch us off guard and perplex us. Knowing what is good and right in each case is not always obvious. Moreover, the right response in one situation is not necessarily the right response in a different situation. For example, in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, we read, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which, which is it? Answer not a fool or answer a fool? Well, it depends on the circumstance. It depends on the situation. Doing what is good and right requires discernment and nuance. Navigating life in a sinful, broken, vexing world is tough. Brothers and sisters, we need wisdom. The good news for those who desire wisdom is that God graciously and generously gives wisdom to those who seek it in Him. We are going to spend the next four months going through the book of Proverbs. We will work our way through the first nine chapters expositionally, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Then we will preach the remaining two-thirds of the book thematically, drawing out the major themes of Proverbs. During the course of this series, I hope we will all take time to meditate on the wisdom provided in this book. I pray the Lord will grow us into a community of wisdom who graciously, humbly, and skillfully counsel one another in the way of the Lord and spur one another on as followers of Jesus. I'm going to read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and I encourage you to follow along. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The author of Proverbs, or at least most of the book, identifies himself as Solomon. We also see contributions from others, including Agur and Lemuel. We know about Solomon from the book of 1 Kings. King David, the most prominent and famous king of Israel, was his father. After David died, Solomon sat on his throne and became king of Israel at a young age. Shortly after that, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, inviting him to ask him for anything he wanted. We read about this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5-16. through 16. We read, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. 
And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. What an opportunity. The Lord asked him, what do you want? Ask me whatever you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom. This request pleased the Lord. The Lord was pleased with his request and gave him what he asked for and more. In the very next passage, his wisdom was put to the test. And then his wisdom was put on display. I'm going to read verses 16 through 28. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside, from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. 
But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. In a word versus word scenario, he used incredible skill to reveal the truth of the matter. A little parenting tip, this trick does not work when two siblings are fighting over a toy. And the last thing I'll share from 1 Kings comes from chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. We see in these verses that the wisdom we read in Proverbs is ultimately from the Lord. And the wisdom that the Lord gives surpasses all other wisdom. Solomon is the primary author of Proverbs, and the Lord gave him wisdom and inspired him to write many Proverbs. So what are Proverbs? What is a proverb? The word proverb means a comparison or to formulate an expression, to show a parable. A proverb formulates an expression and compares two things to illuminate the meaning or the nature of one of those things. You have probably heard a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. This is an expression, an expression formulated comparing two things with the purpose of teaching someone that it is better to hold on to something one has than to risk losing it by trying to get something better. Robert Stein writes, a proverb is a short, pithy saying that expresses a wise general truth concerning life. Helmut von Moltke, who lived from 1800 to 1891, was an accomplished Prussian military commander. Among the many things he wrote, he said, no plan of operations reaches with any certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's main force. Now, this is an insightful, and is an insightful quote that comes from his experience as a military general, as a military strategist. He had experience in battle, whereby he developed plan, a strategy, 
in a war, but he recognized that that plan, that strategy, when, when it came up against opposition, the enemy's force generally went out the window. The plan did not last beyond first contact with the enemy's opposition. Now, that's obviously a, a helpful insight, a great quote, but it's not exactly pithy. It's not exactly a quote you can quickly call to memory. You can memorize it if you work at it, but you're not going to quickly remember it if you haven't put effort into memorizing it. But it turns out that you don't need to be a brilliant military general or strategist to understand this point. When preparing to fight against Evander Holyfield, former heavyweight champion Mike Tyson was asked if he was worried about Holyfield's plan for the fight. And he replied, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> Mike Tyson was essentially making the same point as Helmut von Moltke. Von Moltke said it more eloquently, Tyson said it more memorably. I bring this up because when I was preparing to plant a church in 2015, our team developed a plan. We developed a plan for planting a church, a plan for evangelism, a plan for making disciples in small groups. And we had a great plan that we laid out. We diagrammed it out. We had it in print format. We could show people this is our plan. And we received good feedback. People would say, you have a good plan. And I would say, yeah, but you know what Mike Tyson says about having a good plan, right? They would look at me like, what are you talking about? And I would say, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And people would kind of go, okay, yeah, all right. And then, but if I said it to someone who had previously planted a church, they would go, oh yeah, that's totally true. <laughs> it was self-evident. You see, people who've planted a church understand this because oftentimes church planters face unexpected opposition. Nate and I have had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with church planters over the last eight years, and one of the things you'll discover if you're talking to church planters is the kinds of obstacles they have to overcome. Maybe someone who's planting a church has identified a gathering place, but that gathering place, right before they're about to start gathering, gets swept out from under them, and they're not able to use it anymore. Or maybe people who are part of the core, core team bail on them, and they decide not to help plant the church anymore. Or maybe there was funding they were counting on that is no longer going to be coming their way. Or maybe there's a big sin issue that erupts within the small life of, of the church plant. You see, there's all kinds of opposition that comes when planting a church, and sometimes it feels like you're getting punched in the mouth. So Mike Tyson was referring to his upcoming fight, but what he said was a short, pithy statement that expressed a general truth about life. And in my opinion, was a great comparison with church planting. However, Robert Stein further explained that a biblical proverb is a short, pithy saying that expresses a wise general truth concerning life from a divine perspective. The divine perspective element is seen in verse 7, which we'll get to shortly. But before we do, I think we need to understand the general truth nature of Proverbs. One of the things we know about general truths is that they have exceptions. The general truths posited in Proverbs have exceptions. But the reality of exceptions does not disprove the general truths presented. If you are a student, it is generally true that if you study diligently and work hard, 
you will do well and get good grades in your classes. Now, maybe you can think of an exception, and there are exceptions, but those exceptions are few and far between. It is generally true that if you study diligently and work hard, you are going to get good grades. The reality of the exceptions does not disprove the general truth. As we work our way through this book, we will encounter longer discourses in the first nine chapters and then short, pithy sayings that express wise, general truths concerning life from a divine perspective. Understanding this helps us avoid the mistake of treating Proverbs as though they are promises. Proverbs is not a book of promises that, if followed, will guarantee specific outcomes. Instead, Proverbs provides us with wise sayings and principles from the Lord and general truths from a divine perspective which help us navigate the complexities and challenges of life and walk in His righteousness. Proverbs 22.6 is a wonderful verse that says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This verse provides wonderful encouragement both to parents and to children. It encourages parents to actively train children in the way that they should go, to teach them God's word, to help them understand the gospel, to give them good instruction. It encourages children who have been raised in such a way to persevere in the way that their parents have instructed them. It's a call for both parents and children to persevere in the way of the Lord. But we would be mistaken to interpret this as a promise. We would be mistaken to interpret this in such a way that we believe that if we train our children the way they should go, that they will, in fact, become Christians. If we take this as a promise, we will wrongly take credit for our kids' salvation if they become Christians. Or we will wrongly bear the burden of guilt if they do not become Christians. It is a good encouragement. It is a general truth, but it is not a promise. So, Solomon is the author, and Proverbs are what he writes. In verses 2 through 6, we find the goal of Proverbs. Solomon explains that the Proverbs are given to gain wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The wisdom God gives us is much more than theoretical knowledge. He gives us insight to guide and direct our lives. His wisdom leads to wise dealing and prudent behavior so that we do what is right just and fair. The wise person seeks to walk in the righteousness of the Lord. The goal of Proverbs is not merely to impart knowledge, but to shape character. The Lord will use this book to bring correction in our lives where there is sin and waywardness. He will expose and reveal to us the error in our ways and lead us on a path of repentance. And we all need this. 
Consider the target, audi- target audience in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, we read, To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. We might think, yes, of course, that makes sense. After all, it is the simple who need prudence. It is the youth who need knowledge and discretion. This book is for the simple. It's for the young people. It's for those who don't have a lot of knowledge, insight, understanding, and wisdom. This book is for them. Yes, but listen again to verse 5 where we read, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. The target audience is also those who are wise and who possess understanding. The target audience is both those who are simple and those who have understanding, the young and the old, those who are just beginning and those who are further along on the road. The book of Proverbs is for all of us. We all need wisdom from the Lord. One thing that is obvious in Proverbs is that wisdom is applied knowledge or skill. A person may have a high IQ or have a lot of knowledge, yet fail to apply wisdom. Many people are very intelligent, but do not provide examples that are commendable and worthy of following. It's not uncommon for someone who is very intelligent to be prideful and arrogant. But Proverbs impresses on us that pride is antithetical to wisdom. We see that wise people intend to listen and increase their learning. Again, in verse 5, we've seen that the wise are called to hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands is to obtain guidance. I think this should stand out to us. I hope this sticks with us. I hope we remember that the wise are called to hear and increase learning. The wise person never assumes that they have arrived in terms of gaining understanding, insight, and knowledge, but is eager to learn more. Consider the vastness of the Lord's knowledge. Consider how little we know in comparison. Even the person among us who has the most knowledge, the most insight, the most experience, knows next to nothing in comparison with the Lord. We will never plumb the depths of his wisdom. How foolish and arrogant for us to think we've learned enough, to think we possess enough wisdom, to think we have little to gain by listening. Brothers and sisters, a wise person possesses a humble posture. A wise person recognizes that no matter how much I've learned, now no matter how much I've come to understand, the Lord has immeasurably more to offer me in terms of gaining knowledge, insight, understanding, and wisdom. The wise person wants to continue to seek and soak up 
the wisdom that God gives. The best example of this that I have witnessed is the example provided to me by my dad. My dad loves the book of Proverbs. He reads Proverbs every month. Most months, I get a call on the first day of the month from my dad who encourages me and quotes something from Proverbs chapter one. My dad grew up in Seattle. He went to Seattle Prep High School. He went to college at Seattle University where he got his degree in English. After he graduated college, he went to Boston College where he got his Juris Doctorate, his law degree. He's been practicing law for decades. My dad knows a lot. He has a lot of experience. He knows law. He knows history. He knows literature. He knows politics. He's read the Bible cover to cover many times over. All of these things are great and impressive, but let me tell you something that has had far more of an impression on me. When my dad has a conversation with you, regardless of who you are, regardless of your age, regardless of your level of education, regardless of your race or ethnicity, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your success or failures, when my dad has a conversation with you, he believes that he is going to gain insight and understanding by listening to you. He is not concerned at all with trying to impress you or demonstrate for you how much he knows or how smart he is. He doesn't waste any time doing that. He listens intently, believing that he will gain something from you. Brothers and sisters, that is the humble posture that Proverbs commends to us. I'm not saying that we never share what we've learned with others. Maybe you've learned something. You've gained an insight and you're excited to share with others. That is a good thing. I appreciate when people share things that they've learned with me. I enjoy sharing with others things I have learned. That doesn't mean we never speak, but it, it just means that our posture toward others is that of expecting to learn and gain something from them, never thinking, I know more than this person. This person needs to listen to me, not the other way around. Do you look for opportunities to learn from others? Do you believe you can gain insight from others regardless of who they are? What is more important to you? Is it more important to you that people see how smart you are or that you continue to increase in learning? If the only thing the Lord accomplishes in our sermon series through Proverbs is to produce in us a humble desire to learn and grow in wisdom, then this sermon series will be a huge success. Well, we've already seen that Solomon wasn't the only one known for wise sayings, as there were other people, groups, and cultures producing Proverbs of their own. But verse 7 tells us what sets the biblical Proverbs apart from all other wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is not a fear of a God or a vague, 
unknowable God. No, it is fear of Yahweh, the one true and living God that is the beginning of knowledge. The personal and sacred name of the God of Israel, Yahweh, is used almost 90 times in Proverbs. We also see in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, that Yahweh is the author and center of all creation. He is the fountainhead of all knowledge and wisdom. To pursue wisdom apart from him is utterly futile. It is worthless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It does not mean that we are afraid of him, that we cower terrified. But it does mean that we rightly revere him. C.S. Lewis gave us a beautiful picture in one of the most memorable conversations in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Mrs. Beaver described Aslan, Lucy expressed concern that Aslan wasn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. The children loved and longed for Aslan. But they rightly revered and respected him, understanding he is not one to trifle with. When he speaks, you listen. When he roars, you stand up straight. In Deuteronomy 6, the people of Israel were commanded to fear the Lord by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. And they were commanded to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. Fear of the Lord and love of the Lord go hand in hand. It is not one or the other. Charles Bridges wrote, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. We are called to fear the Lord. Well, maybe the fear of the Lord is something that is new to you. If you're not a Christian, maybe you wonder why we are to fear the Lord. Well, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. You're always welcome here. Our greatest desire for you is to come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you will know that God made you. He is your creator, and we are made in his image, created to know him, to love him, to obey him, to glorify him, and enjoy him. But we have all sinned. We have all rebelled against him. We've all disobeyed his good commands. And therefore, we are deserving of judgment. Apart from Christ, we should fear God in all the ways we think of fear. Apart from Christ, there is judgment. But God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners such as us, so that we do not need to fear judgment. Christ came into the world as a savior of the world. He lived a perfect life without sin. He died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life instead of the judgment we deserve. After he was buried, he rose from the grave, conquering death. 
Then Christ ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And friends, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a day. There will be a day of final judgment. And apart from Christ, you should fear that judgment. But for all who believe in Christ, who all who have received him, we do not need to fear that judgment because we have been saved. We have been forgiven. We have been reconciled. We have been restored to God. So if you're not a Christian, our greatest hope and desire for you is that you will believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And when you are saved, when you are restored to God, you do not need to fear judgment. Fear of the Lord, rightly fearing the Lord, drives out all the other bad kinds of fear. Fear of man, fear of death, fear of judgment. I hope you'll consider 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We read, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, we hope that you will look to God's word. God's word can make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is our greatest hope, desire, and prayer for you. For those of us who are Christians, we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have now been adopted into God's family. God is our Father. Christ is our elder brother. And we have one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been adopted into this amazing, extraordinary family. And as dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father, our lives are to be characterized by affectionate reverence, whereby we carefully, humbly submit ourselves to His will and commands. We don't take His word lightly. We don't ignore His commands. We don't obey only when it's convenient. No, we fear the Lord and we love the Lord. We demonstrate our fear of the Lord and our love for the Lord by listening to him and by obeying him. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 record Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he uttered profound wisdom and gave us good commands. And here is how he concluded the sermon. In Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 through 27, Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus teaches us what it means to be wise. We fear the Lord. We hear his words, and we do them. We are called to listen and obey. We are called to seek wisdom in the Lord. 
And brothers and sisters, may God grant that to us. May he grant it to us to grow in wisdom. May he grant it to us to fear him, to walk in obedience to him, that we might grow together as a community of wisdom so that he might be glorified among us. May he do this through our time studying Proverbs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. We thank you that you give wisdom generously to those who seek it in you. We pray that we will be those who humbly seek wisdom in you. We pray that we will rightly fear you, walking in your ways. And as we do so, we pray that we will grow together, bringing glory to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.